On this New Year's Eve, we're taking a big step forward in launching our Patreon, which we hope will allow us to scale up, institutionalize, expand our team, and become more regular. In this very special episode, we go through the history of our project from the early days of the Arab Spring through to the present. Our project is a child of the Arab Spring, and if you're interested in the evolution of resistance, this is a must-listen. It was 2011 when Iyad started his activism, whilst he still lived in the UAE, and between 2011 to 2013, during the heyday of the revolutions, the outlines of an intellectual project were starting to form. This is our story. Let's say between 2013 and 2016, which is when I realized I'm going to be arrested and between getting back on my feet again or feeling like I got back on my feet again, three years. The entire uh, Middle East completely changed. Everything changed. Everything changed not only in terms of the state of resistance in um, uh, you know the social realities and the political realities in the Middle East, but also globally. Because by 2014, you had ISIS. By 2015, you had a major refugee crisis. By 2016, you had a populist backlash. So my thinking, my entire uh, understanding of my intellectual project in 2013 was focused more on indigenization of liberty, specifically in the Muslim, the Arab Muslim world, within a world that was already where everything was possible. Everything was, was, uh, was open. And you didn't have to basically look behind your shoulder. Of course, you still had to, but it wasn't as repressive. The, the risk, of course, was always there. The threat was always there, and that's eventually what happened. But there was a feeling of empowerment that kind of says, I'm empowered to say this. I can allow myself the imagination to think about this. That was the spirit of the entire Arab Spring. I can do what I want now. Uh, it's beyond that. It's It's the idea that if something is completely theoretical, you don't have to think of specifics. You don't have to think of practicalities. Like, for example, if if you're never going to get power, you know that you're never going to get power in the next 20 or 50 years. There is no reason for you to figure out uh, a taxation scheme that actually works and run the numbers for it. You know, uh, The Arab Spring changed everything in that sense because what was impossible became urgent, not just possible, but urgent. So... Everybody who had an idea like, oh, we have to be Islamist or we have to be Arab nationalist or we have to be leftist or we have to be a capitalist, etc. There was no politics before, so nobody had to actually figure anything out. Suddenly, every project had to compete and everybody had to have come up with a plan immediately. And at, at the same time, of course, you're talking to everybody. You're talking to everybody across the intellectual board. So out of that came kind of the outline of an intellectual project by, that by 2013 became clear. At that time, our intellectual project was no larger than a book. And to backtrack a step, this is around the time when we started working together. So I think it was late. It was around 2012 when um, your Twitter feed came to my attention and you'd be opening provocative topics about Islamic reform, um, about um re-examining islamic history and basically um dissecting sacred cows and showing that what we think happened isn't really the entire story it wasn't always this way and then i ended up being basically 
trying to push you into writing this book? Uh, what really spurred me and thought and thought I have to write this book right now is really uh, those two events. Uh, first, the, the fact that we had a really bad August with the, the Rabah massacre and the Ghouta massacre, and I knew at that time that it's a matter of time before we have another wave of jihadism. And I knew that they're going to come after everybody. They uh, being the Arab regimes. The Arab regimes. Basically, it was it became very clear what they were doing, who's behind it, and what was their plan. Uh, the second uh, event was really a personal event, which is that I found out that Amara was pregnant. We were we weren't planning on becoming on being pregnant, but you know it happened, and I realized that I have a deadline now, uh, and that's when we started regular um, recording sessions. I think we have maybe. Is it, is it 45 hours of content or maybe more? At least, yeah. And we were basically daily. So every day, an hour a day. After work, I would um, leave my job and head to the nearest cafe and set up my laptop um, every day, like through December to like April, May. Through April, through the day that I was arrested, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, I'd, I'd sit down and we'd basically Skype, talk through an issue, produce a lot of notes. And then with the recording and the notes, I'd basically write it up and slowly a book was taking shape. And this was the original project, which we called the Arab Spring Manifesto, which was a a manifesto for Islamic libertarianism, a post-Arab Spring vision that could compete for the territory and and, and produce an alternative for our societies. And at the same time, by January 2014, it became clear to me that I'm going to be arrested eventually. Hmm. I did not think that they're going to be reckless. And I didn't think that, oh, they're going to arrest me right away. I thought, oh, maybe I, if I leave, if I keep a, a low profile and I stop tweeting the most more influential stuff, I delay some of my media projects. Um, reduce your Arabic output in particular. Reduce my Arabic output and speak more about like commentary rather than analysis. Uh, maybe they're going to allow me to, you know, they're like, okay, this guy is not a, there's, there's no trouble. Basically look less threatening. Yeah, and of course, uh, now I know that it doesn't it doesn't help. Uh, keep in mind that uh, what was happening around me, everybody was getting arrested, mm. everybody was getting silenced or arrested. People are going basically, you know, we know that they're being beaten and tortured. You mean in the UAE? It was a time in the UAE. It was silencing really. It, basically, people started to become silent. But the assault really came in Egypt, uh, where a lot of my you know colleagues and comrades were. Uh, Syria became completely, you know, uh, this was after the massacre, after the Huta massacre in 2013. So it became clear that the Islamists and jihadist element, the more extremist elements are on the rise because that's what happens when you commit such massive massacres and people feel like, you know, I don't care who I support so long, uh, you know, they get me out of here. So it was basically a really dark period in the Arab world and um, the forces of authoritarianism were rising everywhere and they were triumphant. They felt that they won and they're going coming after everybody. And I think I tweeted this exactly. I said, they think they won and they're coming after everybody who believed. And then, of course, came the arrest, um, end of April 2014. And of course, at, at that point, nobody knew what happened to me. It's just that on April 29th, uh, Basim Sabri, uh, my dear friend, uh, uh, fell for, to his death in, uh, in Egypt. Before we, we could process the news, the next morning I was arrested in another country in the UAE. So you were basically in shock and grief, and those were the last things you tweeted that night. And then your your account basically didn't tweet again for six months. Yeah, and of course, many people the, the many people assume that, you know, he's grieving. 
and maybe that protected me because not many people I was afraid of the news coming out because I thought if the news comes out and I know the the how the UAE government works they won't release me that like pe- if st- people start uh, trending free Iyad mm-hmm. they'll uh, double down they'll double down they'll probably arrest me uh, they'll probably charge me with something because they to- they said we need you like they said you have to leave the country because of course the fear over here is that if it comes out it becomes embarrassing for the UAE and we could, like there's a free Iyad that gets trending they said you have to leave we have nowhere to send you, so you have to be in the deportation chamber indefinitely. Uh, but there was a way out, because if a country allows me to go, if I figure out where to go, if I pay for my ticket, etc., then I'm allowed to leave. Otherwise, I'm in jail indefinitely. Eventually, of course, they would come and they say, there's one place you can go, which is Malaysia, because that's the only country that allows visa-free travel to Palestinians. So eventually, it became a choice of jail or uh, Malaysia. Uh, and of course, I, I chose deportation as soon as possible. But the reasoning behind that is, if, if this became a PR problem for them, two things. Either they're going to deport me immediately, doesn't matter where, and most likely that would have been Egypt because I had an Egyptian travel document. And if I end up in Egypt, I end up disappeared, basically, probably dead. Or they will have to justify why I'm in jail, in which case they'll charge me with something. Because initially they didn't charge me with anything. I was not tried. I, was, I didn't stand trial. There was nothing. And of course, I was extremely worried about uh, Amara, who was seven months pregnant at the time. I ended up in Malaysia. I lived in the airport for 26 days because you know, Malaysia didn't allow me in, in initially. But then we actually continued working. After that, I was in Malaysia for four months, uh, kind of trying to sort out my paperwork so that I'm allowed to go to, to Oslo, to okay. join the Oslo Freedom Forum. And we were still writing throughout that still entire time. time. Uh, eventually, I came to the Oslo Freedom Forum. That's when we met uh, for the first time, uh, like face to face. And then after the Oslo Freedom Forum, I ended up in the, living in a refugee camp in, uh, in Norway for three months. And again, some of our best content came, came out during that time. You were basically living in the middle of nowhere in the far north of Norway. Uh, well, not the far north. It was like three, month, three hours or three and a half hours to the north of Oslo. But it's basically on the Swedish border, if you look at the map, uh, which is nothing but woods. And it's like the coldest uh, frontier because it's away from the sea. And it was it was it was winter. It was like um, this was between November and February. This is how Iyad went from living in the UAE to being a political refugee and exile dissident. It was not a smooth transition or a soft landing. So anyway, 2015, eventually after I got asylum, 2015 proved to be quite a traumatic year when I was arrested. It, it was tough, but I felt like I can do it. And of course, the, the traumatic part really was that it's like the worst outcome I could ever imagine as of 2013 and early 2014. Like the worst, the, my worst nightmare was I'm going to lose my country. And then I was put in a situation in, that, in those few days where losing your country is actually the best possible outcome. Like the worst possible outcome became the best possible outcome because... Uh, that was the only way for me to to survive and not end up in jail for a very long time or dead or whatever. And I remember um, this, like, it was very difficult for me to understand this for a long time uh, because obviously I didn't experience it. But um, I'm sure like any normal person would expect that the day you're arrested by an authoritarian state which does not have rule of law and does not respect human rights at all would be the worst day of your life. But in fact, um, far from it. And it actually got a lot worse. It's really the fact that I became uh, truly stateless 
I mean, before I was theoretically stateless, I had a country, uh, and this was the only country I lived in ever in my life, um, and I had a life there. So my statelessness was kind of theoretical, um, and suddenly it became a, a reality in a sense that it wasn't just a legal thing, but actually it's the fact that I have nowhere to go. So anyway, 2015 ended up being uh, productive intellectually. Thankfully, I I had enough friends around Norway and around the world where uh, I always had somewhere to go. And my brain was thinking, you see, one defense mechanism that people deal with trauma, like people have different defense mechanisms, but my defense mechanism was to crowd out all of these really dark thoughts by focusing completely on, on work. And we have a lot of like... We, we wrote a lot of stuff together in that year, still sitting in our archives unpublished. Three, four years later, it's still groundbreaking. Um, it's ahead of where the public conversation is in some on some topics today. At that time, was the highlight of both the refugee crisis and ISIS. So a lot of what, uh, what we wrote at that time was about radicalization. A lot of uh, epistemology and philosophy when it comes to Islamic intellectual history and thought. At that point, I think by then, we didn't touch the Arab Spring Manifesto or Islamic libertarianism since then because our interest kind of shifted to something else. And of course, 2015 was spent really like having saved my own skin, trying to, to save my family. Um, and it was a mixed bag. It was mixed results, basically. Um, I mean, they're physically safe, but they're not well. So 2016 was when, first of all, the intellectual project had shifted and changed. A lot of stuff that, that was post-Arab Spring got added into it. And so the radicalization roadmap did not exist by 2015. Was, this was created in 2015. Populism stuff and, you know, um, uh, the behavior of authoritarianism, etc. Of course, that, that was conceived initially in 2011, but it was it evolved a lot in 2015 and 2016. And not only the, the material was changing, but also um, the structure of what we wanted to do. So we, when we started working together, we were writing a book. And then at some point we decided we need to create a think tank. That was 2015 when we started to think that now that we were unshackled, now that I, I am, I'm free to build or rebuild in a country which allows me complete freedom of speech, the horizon of what I can accomplish is different. But also there was another psychological reason, which is that when I was writing a book, I was part of a movement. And I thought that, you know, it's going to be one book among many books by the Arab Spring, by, generation. By Arab Spring generation. And I thought that, you know, it takes a time, t- some time to write a book. Uh, you can't expect us to write books in 2011 uh, or even 2012. You know, 2013 would have been the, the expected time when political programs start coming out, you know, like political theories start coming out. People start actually, novels start coming out, etc. People start building for the future. Exactly. And unfortunately, you know, the tragic part is 2013 is when everything ended. That's when we were supposed to get started, right? Uh, of course, there was no guarantee. When I was arrested, I had no idea where I'm going to end up, and I, there was no guarantee that I'm going to end up in Norway. That's why when I look at my own uh, my own journal or my own tweets, uh, sometimes I'm astounding by, I want, don't want to call it recklessness, but almost blind faith, let's say. Uh, saying Basically saying that I don't care, uh, I will say the truth, and if they come for me, they come for me. I know if I know in my heart that I'm doing this for the right reason, I accept any outcome. 
And and that's when I started to think in terms of we have to build more. It's more than just uh, and keep in mind that my my previous life or my previous career was in startup consultancy. Uh, I never worked with nonprofits before. I, I worked with commercial startups in my previous career. And so building ecosystems, building companies, building project uh, business plans, etc. was part of my skill set. But we were also looking at a lot of activists who had basically burnt out, who had gone back to their pre-Arab Spring day jobs and thinking, you know, if we really want to produce a sustainable change, um, we need to be sustainable ourselves. We need to be able to support ourselves and we need to be um, institutionalized, as in we need to create an institution that backs us rather than depending on people who may support us and may not, depending on which, which way the wind blows. We need to be able to say, you know, we have our own institution, we're building our own project, and our ship is going to weather the storm. By, by 2016 is when I had to write the proposal. And I had to sit down and say, because I had to apply for funding. A lot of, I mean, the moment you, you come down to writing a proposal, you have to clarify your thinking and what a lot of stuff which was uh, in your head. Um, and it has to be a concrete proposal with a timeline, etc. And you have, you have to basically boil down ideas into projects. So I immediately sat down and created a content plan uh, for a 15-article project uh, that we called Islam and Liberty. At that time, we didn't mention anything about the foundation. We said this is Islam and Liberty as a project, and eventually we will have a, a kind of a think tank or a startup, and we will endow, like basically that organization will assume responsibility for this project, which started as a personal project. We, it was supposed to launch in late 2016, and we thought that our mandate is wider than just uh, Islam and Liberty. Islam and Liberty was one theme that we were interested in, but really uh, the wider uh, theme was really authoritarianism. And that's why we thought that the Arab Tyrant Manual being a very uh, well-known brand, internet brand or hashtag since 2011, basically we already have this captive audience. People know what it is. People know what it's about, and we, we basically picked it up. And uh, this was during 2016, and I remember our plans took a big turn with the U.S. election. Exactly. So in 2016, as you mentioned earlier, there was the issue of independence. In During 2014 and 2015, uh, even though it seemed like the world is basically falling apart around us, uh, when it comes to the Arab world and ISIS, etc., etc., there was a lot of sympathy. Like when, we, when I met with politicians, uh, when I met with even... even people who today we would associate with the right wing or the populists uh, in 2015 they were sympathetic to the cause of liberty and you know they would receive us very warmly we would like i'd be you know invited to, to various events etc there was interest and there was a lot of sympathy i guess with what happened to the Arab spring because it was inspirational for so many people so at that time the idea of a think tank you know yeah we can get funding we can get funding from a government this changed in 2016, and actually it changed around between 2015 and 2016 when it became clear that security became a bigger priority. Um, sort of as we were trying to promote this and seeking funding, doors were slowly closing around us as people were basically shifting their focus from the idealism that they had and the optimism of 2011, 2012 to basically a more short-term focus of Europe has a radicalization problem, Europe has a refugee problem, we need to solve these two problems now. And this takes priority over the long-term ideal of democracy and liberty. And we were still pushing against this and sort of trying to secure the funding. And then in October 2016, all of a sudden, the doors shut. So it, it, it was really 2016 with Trump's election. And I believe 
between securing the funds, uh, which was around September, and between the election, I was we were preparing to launch. And then we received the news about Trump. And there was another thing that happened, by the way, that we that really did factor in, even though we don't acknowledge it, which is that in November, again, I received a direct threat from ISIS. Uh, ISIS added my name to uh, a kill list. And uh, they were distributing kind of this list among their uh, Telegram channels. They're urging lone wolves to take action. So we had to actually change our priorities. And I believe when these two things happened, I remember we... Um, uh, emailed Frit Ur and Savita and our other stakeholders and we told them that we're going to change the structure of this project and we said that we're going to delay the launch. There was also the, I'm not sure how to describe this exactly, but we were basically thinking about our theory of change and how do we as sort of writers, researchers, thinkers actually produce a change um, in the world um, because we've seen people who are you know, probably as smart as we are, um, at least. That, that's kind of flattering ourselves. But they basically sit in the ivory towers for a lifetime and produce loads of, you know, really brilliant research. Um, and it was that gulf of understanding between sort of the elite and the everyday man that was jarring and disillusioning. And we were thinking, how do we not become that? And how do we actually have an impact? And around this time, we had this concept of indigenization and popularization. Mm. So in order to make an idea succeed, you have to indigenize it, which means you have to express it in a way that is faithful to the history of the community you're talking to about that idea. So if you're talking to Muslims about liberty, you don't want to be mentioning John Locke and John Stuart Mill and people who wrote in a European context addressing European problems that were always very different from problems the Muslim world faced. Um, because these ideas existed in Islamic history. You just need to actually look at how they emerged in the Islamic context and do it that way. So that's indigenization, not making the idea foreign. And then we were also thinking about popularization because it's not enough to have an idea. You also have to promote that idea. You have to push it towards mass acceptance almost in the same way from your startup background, like in the same way that you would want your product to gain mass adoption. You know, how did an iPhone go from being a product from a company that had no background in phones to completely taking over the market. How do you do that with an idea? And how do you take an idea from having a very small constituency to being an idea of mass appeal and mass acceptance? And our projects were evolving around this because we were basically thinking, we can't just be researching and producing you know, reports and papers or even sort of newspaper articles. We need to be doing this stuff in a multimedia format which is accessible by different kinds of people um, who live in different parts of the world, speak different languages, they use the internet in different ways. Some listen to podcasts, some watch videos, some use social media, some read books, some read articles. How do you push an idea and enable it to gain mass acceptance? Because just writing articles is not the best way to do that. So our project evolved basically to take into account this and we went from being a pure conventional think tank I remember I was uh, writing quite a lot of notes around this time about what does a 21st century think tank look like because the historic keep, keep model... In, uh, keep in mind also that a, a classical think tank would be trying to advocate something to a particular government. Exactly. And we were not that. We, we were talking to the public. We wanted to achieve ideological change rather than policy change. And so we were reinventing a think tank simultaneously to turn it from sort of a policymaker facing 
research institution into a public-facing research institution. A think tank for the benefit of the public, and also reinvent the think tank for the digital age, which um, a few people are kind of quietly doing, um, but sort of it, it hasn't really hit the mainstream yet. So in twenty in twenty sixteen, we were still thinking that we're going to apply for grants. We were still uh, the, our financial model had not caught up. What we probably missed is the fact that. So all of a sudden, this project that was supposed writing a, was supposed writing a well-researched article per month became writing the article, producing media, videos, podcasts, infographics, etc. So it went from work which is which can be done by a per single person to uh, something that requires basically a big media house. And so we enter uh, 2017, and I believe it was really uh, right around the inauguration that uh, we had our launch, uh, like in Norwegian, in the Norwegian language. What was really unexpected about 2017 is that around the same time that I said, okay, now I can I have to buckle up and do all of this work and fundraise, etc. The amount of work increased tremendously. The amount of political volatility that we were dealing with increased dramatically after Trump, not only Trump, but also Arab dictators, that's the unsaid story. Arab dictators went bunkers because they're so happy that now they have space. So the amount of workload really increased. And in 2017, that's where the PTSD symptoms started to, to mount. Uh, and the pressure, of course, as I said, mounted. Our fundraising activities became far less effective because the political after Trump, what had started in 2015 or 2014, which is this shift from uh, hey, let's fund projects related to democratization and, and liberty, etc. It went to security and jihadism studies. And by 2016, it became clear to us, uh, 2016, 2017, really, that's when we're still trying to fundraise. I guess we were trying to fundraise on our own terms. Hmm. But also, uh, a few major funders who had expressed significant interest and even invited us to um, speak at events they basically stopped returning our calls. And it became clear that if you want to get funding, you will have to massage the message, so to speak, which means the, the topic of the day is not democratization. The topic of the day is security studies, terrorism studies, counterterrorism, radicalization, jihadism. Uh, jihadism, anything that you had to, like you cannot speak about democratization, anti-authoritarianism, etc. in the Muslim or Arab context without... Uh, making it about extremism. And a lot of organizations sort of shifted their mission uh, and we weren't willing to do that. I hated it. And that's aside from the fact that they were being so incredibly short-sighted because how do you expect to end extremism if these governments in the Middle East are still a crisis factory? Exactly. That, that was actually something that I, I almost made a reputation for myself by speaking about that and saying that you have to tackle the root causes. So had I accepted that premise... Had we accepted as a team this premise, first of all, we would have lost our mission and we would have been sucked into dependence for grants because we would have built an organization, you know, you have salaries to pay, you have, you know, office rent to pay, etc. all dependent on the grantors. We started to think we don't want to go this route of becoming dependent on institutional funders. And we basically thought about this and, and tried to figure out who can we trust who will back us and who will support us um, without sort of these undue demands and who will 
put their trust in our mission and our ability to achieve that. And there was only one answer, which is our audience. Yeah. And that's when, that's why in 2017, we decided to launch a fundraiser. To be honest, we weren't completely explicit about what we want to do with the funds because at the time, our own plans were evolving. We were, we ourselves were still thinking, what is the priority? What's the financial priority? Of course, we needed to pay our own salaries, etc. But also like, are we going to put this towards a media budget or are we going to put this towards an event program, etc.? So that summer, we launched a crowdfunder and our audience backed us incredibly generously. Um, it sort of blew our expectations out of the water that we hadn't even explicitly said exactly what we're going to do with this money, but people just dived in. I, I was skeptical about how much to ask, and I thought maybe we should fund ourselves for like a couple of months. Yeah, like $10,000. Uh, and eventually I said, you know what? No, let's ask for $20,000. And we ended, we eventually got 35000 At the time, we were still wondering, should we go institutional funding or should we go audience funding? And we got, uh, throughout 2017, we got more funds. We also got some institutional funding. Uh, it was like not, not enough to run things. Most funding we got in that year was from our own audience. And of course, when it came to implementation, that's when we hit the major snag, which was the PTSD worsening. So that's basically, we, we kind of, the PTSD was rumbling in the background this whole time and you were struggling with it and you were kind of trying to still ignore it and trying not to talk about it. No, uh, to be honest, I thought that settling down and getting to work uh, is going to make these symptoms go away. You thought it was over, basically. To be honest, in 2015, when I consulted with, uh, with, with some, some, some friends who have, uh, you, know, you know, they have some background, they said you have to build a new normal. This is the next step. You have to. You have. You have lost your normal, and you have to build a new normal. And I thought, you know, that means I have to like uh, get back to work. That didn't happen. Um, I. It's obviously it's not something that you can just shake off. Sometimes I hesitate about saying this, but I tried to kill myself twice in 2017. Uh, it got that bad, and it was only when it got that bad that I realized this is a threat to my life, and I need to seek professional help. Uh, otherwise, this this is something that can actually end my life. Uh, I started to seek institutional uh, help, not only in terms of therapy, but in terms of, listen, guys, uh, I'm talking, you know, about the Norwegian bureaucracy. Listen, guys, I'm a refugee. You accept me as a refugee. I have certain rights, and I never, I never received them. So just listening to this, it kind of makes me realize, to, in a way I didn't at the time, how crazy we were. That like, you are a stateless refugee. You've been kicked out of your country, as has your entire family by that point. You've made it to Norway and been accepted as a refugee. You still can't open a bank account after over a year. Like, it's, so you don't have a living at that point. And yet you're a fellow at Norway's leading liberal think tank. Um, and we're like trying to build an institution and like you can't open a bank account. Yeah. I mean, However, at, at the time I was on and off really frustrated. Um, and I, I guess you were as well that we basically felt like Everything we try and do, it's like we're running headlong into a wall repeatedly and the wall just won't give and my I head is getting that. sore. But at the time, we were pissed off at ourselves. We were like, why can't we achieve what we set out to achieve? I, I mean, we took it very hard on ourselves. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we were very hard on ourselves, I guess, because of this, again, I mean, for me, I, I, personally, it was this feeling of guilt and this feeling of responsibility that says that you need to be more effective. Uh, you know, you need, to, you need to kind of uh, uh, rise up to the occasion, to the responsibility. Uh, a lot of people have have their faith on you 
and it almost broke me in 2017. That's, that's when I started to seek uh, professional help. A little after raising the funds, we basically started to reevaluate everything. Yeah, and we realized that, you know, since uh, we kind of had an open mandate with the funds, we hadn't, uh, we hadn't kind of made an obligation upon ourselves to say this is going to be the media platform. In fact, after raising the funds and closing the fundraiser, that's when we actually told our audience, this is what we want to do. And that's when we started to think that we need to, we, first of all, we need to be independent. We need to be sustainable. We need to be forward-facing, like public-facing. Uh, we completely gave up on the idea of advocating governments because it was clear to us that they, they're very short-term focused and uh, we would be shooting ourselves in the foot if we attach ourselves or tether ourselves to uh, policy discussions. And such changing short-term priorities. And I also say that it was good that we had flexible funding in 2017 rather than institutional funding, because otherwise we would have been, uh, you know, it would have been devastating because I wouldn't have been able to take any time off for myself or try to basically take care of myself. If, if we basically had external deadlines and uh, formal requirements, we would have crashed hard. Um, we would have basically been asked to give the money back. We would have been in debt and your trauma basically would have been so much worse. So effectively... The crowdfunding saved us. In 2017, there was another another event which I kind of overlooked, which is by April, I think it was April 2017, when, when I got a second uh, warning from ISIS. Uh, and that was more personal because the other one was kind of like, oh, they put my name on a, on a kill list and someone told me, you know what, your name is being circulated. In 2017, April, it was a direct message that, that crossed to me saying, we're watching you. That's when I actually went to the Norwegian authorities and... Maybe that was one of the dominoes kind of that, that that led to the PTSD blowing over because I'm like, what am I doing? I mean, I'm working at this level or I'm trying to work at this level and I'm not really taking stock of the entire of my entire situation. I, I for, for, for a very long time, it's, it was really about understanding my place. Of course, part of our projects at the time or part of our understanding of how we're going to fund ourselves is writing books. We, we were actually negotiating a book deal throughout 2016 and 2017. And 2017 is when it actually happened. We had a, a really good uh, literary agent. By 2017, and after all of this ha having happened, there was this other block, which is contractual. Hmm. We had taken an advance to write a book, and the book has to be written. And we had to take that advance because we were basically thinking, um, how else do we fund you to live? As I mean, I had to. I was three months late on rent when when I got the you know the the advance eventually in mid twenty seventeen. And and then so the le the rest of twenty seventeen, I would say from August to the end of the year is when we started to think in terms of launching a second platform, the Arab Parent Manual, and we said that we we promised our audience a media platform, right? Thinking about the Arab Tarrant Manual was, was I guess, a stroke of brilliance for two reasons. First of all, it, it really uh, set, uh, secured, basically we're, we're jumping on one leg because Islam and liberty was that topic that people were interested in in 2014 and nobody was interested in in 2017. But it was still essential. It was still as essential as, as, as ever. But we have built kind of uh, the, the 24, 2014 idea came out in 2017. And it was, again, as relevant as, as ever, but 
uh, we were jumping again, we're jumping on one leg and the Arab tyrant manual gave us the other leg, which was because the Arab tyrant manual was about authoritarianism, including Trump's authoritarianism. And very quickly, we found that we have more content for the Arab tyrant manual than for Islam and liberty. And also, that's how we connect the research that we want to do to current events and current priorities without compromising our vision. Uh, so that's how the Arab Tarant Manual came to be. And of course, the plan was, it's not going to be only a podcast. We'll start with the podcast and then we'll start the Arabic podcast and then we'll do, we'll, we'll start publishing articles and stuff. Around this time, it became clear to us that Islam and Liberty, even though we had to continue the Norwegian uh, series, uh, Islam and Liberty is going to be a much more uh, focused and concentrated project. So basically, Islam and Liberty will be a much smaller, tighter group of writers who are much more sort of unified on their intellectual or orientation and, and their ideas, whereas the Arab Tyrant Manual would be more open to a wider range of contributors who are all pushing in the same direction, which is against authoritarianism. 80% of our output is going to be on Arab Tyrant Manual and 20%, if we actually look at qual quantity rather than quality, uh, 80% ATM, 20% INL, maybe INL will, will produce like really groundbreaking stuff once every two months, while the Arab Tyrant Manual is more about consistent output week after week and hopefully day after day as well. So in 2018, that's when I had to take a break and actually write the book because the publishers were getting annoyed. So, uh, so we started the book at the end of 2017. I think um, it was November that we started to outline it. And, yeah, uh, yeah really and get into December it. that we started seriously uh, writing. Because keep in mind, like I started my therapy sessions in... Um, so I applied for help in, it was August, I believe, and it takes them two months or three months to get back to me. So I think my first session was in October and the period between, in between was like pretty terrible. Uh, like it was like the, the most terrible PTSD uh, symptoms I've ever had, like nightmares and, uh, you know, hypervigilance and this dissociative episodes and disorientation. Like you don't feel where you are, you don't know where you are or when you are. Uh, and I'm weirded out because you, you, the one thing you always rely upon, or at least I could always rely upon, is my brain. And you feel like your brain is playing tricks on you. And that, like, that part itself is probably more traumatic than the symptoms. The fact that you feel like I can't even trust my own senses, my own, my own brain. And I had to write a book uh, whilst, while doing therapy. Man, we're crazy, aren't we? <laughs> it's, it's a good thing you got the therapist by the Trump election because I think we all needed it by then. Uh, but yeah, I mean, and you know, uh, there were a lot of personal difficulties at, at the time. My father's uh, condition continued to deteriorate. My marital situation kind of broke apart. So 2018, I had to write the book. Uh, we worked, I think it was December. I remember working o over the uh, the uh, Christmas break because like two weeks, uh, Oslo almost goes to sleep because everybody goes to, ca to cabins outside the city or skiing. And I left my job um, and basically came over here to... Uh kickstart the the book yeah so that was uh that was 2018 and we what we did really is we actually finished the book uh there was another round of editing in in june um and i i submitted the manuscript beginning of july uh, because you know like you write the book you send it to an editor it comes back to you and then you send it again it comes back to you so keep in mind during this part this time we're still working we're still publishing the arab tyrant manual on a semi-weekly basis. The, the podcast. The podcast. And the book is finished. By the way, it's called The Vicious Triangle, Terrorists, Tyrants, and the West. Uh, excellent title from an excellent editor, by the way. So 
I believe it was in 2018 that we started to think that we need to shift into an audience funding model since our audience have proven that, you know, we can lean on them. And institutional funds, we didn't want to get sucked into that. We didn't want to uh, let go of our independence and we didn't want to become completely dependent on grants that may or may not come. Of course, the platform that actually allows this is, is Patreon. I, I think the, the really important bit to explain here is that Forget what we publish on my, talk, my Twitter account and our institutional Twitter account, which is Islam and Liberty and our time manual. The amount of content, that, the amount of discussions that we have, literally daily, from 2013 to now, there's, there's this other timeline in which we discuss things much more deeply with a lot more presumed knowledge and maybe workshopping ideas that maybe or may or we may or may not publish. So there's there's and, been and normally it's we don't publish. Normally we don't. And we have like thousands of documents, notepad files, word documents. No, and just the chat history. I think like uh, maybe at some if there's like a digital museum, then I think our Facebook uh, chat history should like should fit into that. This could become kind of a two tier uh, system whereby our front facing content is always going to be open and free. So because, you know, a lot of research goes into this and I, I was always really annoyed with like Washington Post or New York Times where it, it only allows you like three articles a month. So, so that's why when we came to designing our own policy, we said we don't want to do that. Our open content is always going to be open and free for all. However, we have another uh, like we have basically that the behind behind the paywall comes our own privileged discussions that are extensive and daily. We basically let you into the factory. We basically let you into our own internal discussions about what's happening which are to be honest are more interesting and of, of often of really high quality in terms of quality of ideas but not polished enough to be uh, to be published and they're often more provocative um and that's why i mean the moment you you have when you go from 5000 followers to 100000 followers uh, when i had 5000 followers i could say whatever the hell i wanted because, you know, like, uh, I didn't have that big an audience. I didn't have that many trolls and haters. I, I still can. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then when you have 100,000 followers and you kind of, uh, your, your kind of, your brand or your image is kind of politicized. Uh, so almost all of the time when we're talking about Islamic reform, we're doing it in like um, a closed chat room. No, um, even, even political stuff. I mean, even, even rem that. remember, for example, when we talked about... Um, I mean, just now we had a discussion about, for example, the sustainability of the UAE, and we even came up with uh, with a timeline for it, saying that by 2036, the UAE would likely be look like an apartheid state. Hmm. Before that, we were basically talking about um, why China can never be the um, preeminent global superpower because they're not universalist, um, which you know we have no plans to publish anytime soon, just because we don't have the time. Uh, and there's also the fact that. You know, like we, we wrote a report about MBS in 2016, right? Uh, Basically predicting, predicting everything up till now. And we haven't like, we, I think every couple of months we, we used to dig it up and like, now is the time to publish it. No, I, I used to dig it up and I used to pressure you. And I, I feel really guilty because I'm pretty sure I played a major role in your PTSD. <laughs> I'd be like, Iyad, why aren't we publishing this? And then I'd come back like a month later, Iyad, we need to publish this. Yeah. It's crazy, but you know, so what we want to do now, I mean, this is the next phase of uh, Kawakibi Foundation, which is, by the way, we're not even a foundation yet, we're a Kawakibi Center, where we have to raise funds in order to become a foundation. I, I think that uh, the coming period, what the way it's going to look is that 
we're going to to launch our Patreon page, uh, which allows you to support us. Let's say put your money where your values are. But it also it also gives you once you do that, you also unlock our behind the paywall uh, kind of private discussions, uh, which, as I said, it's basically it's it's a running commentary that 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 has that goes back five years, really. And it's in a forum. It's formal form forum format, but also I mean there are other formats that you, of course uh, you would it depends upon the level of uh, of support that you want to offer. The interesting thing, the important thing here is that this behind the paywall stuff and this perk is not only available for funders because we need desperately to expand our team. We don't have the funds to hire like twenty people, but we're going to treat volunteers as if they're backers. We're going to basically if you donate three hours of more or more of your time every 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 week uh, then we're going to treat you as if you're giving us you're basically one of our top backers financial backers we don't want to pose it in such a way that we're saying it's only people who pay us money who access our behind the paywall content it's also volunteers it's, it's anyone who supports us uh, but yeah i mean the plan over here is that we want to have consistent output we want to solve the problem of having so much output so much content and inability to publish it. So there's there's basically a lot that has been going on, and there's it's, it's always frustrating when you're working on things on the most volatile topics and countries, uh, you know, uh, target countries in the world, and you have no funds. You know, like basically you're doing this basically because you believe in the cause. But the idea here is that we wanted to create a funding, a business model or a funding model, which is very much tied into our publishing. And the only one that we can think about, uh, the only one that actually makes sense uh, is audience funding. Of course, the goal is to have consistent output. We haven't set the targets exactly yet. We have to do that over the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, several articles. We, we might start with, let's say, expecting three articles a, a week. Going, back, going up to uh, attracting more contributors so we can actually start having a platform which actually publishes five or six articles a day. And we have some really cool contributors who have already agreed to join. Um, I'm so excited to announce one of them. Yeah. The, the real call over here is that we need your support on Patreon. Uh, we, pr we hope to make it worth uh, your while and your money. Uh, but I hope that you understand that if you want to take action according to your values, you have to really back people you believe in uh, and back teams that you believe in. And this is still operating as a three-person team. Myself, Ahmed, and Khulud, who is our uh, designer and creative uh, lead. With a few um, volunteers around us who have also been supporting us. Um, I mean, shout out to Sana. Uh, you're great, Sana. Uh, as our podcast editor, um, you know, Nasser, who's a regular contributor to the podcast. And of course, people, really, really great names that we're kind of holding back, even though we can't hold our excitement. But this is going to be a collective, a writing collective, and we're going to have some really great names. We're going to be in Arabic and in, uh, in English and then Arabic eventually. We're going to try not to get anyone um, deported like Iyad from yeah, Arab no one arrested. Uh, even though it's a possibility when you're when you're working on these these kind of we issues. are genuinely having like these discussions behind the scenes that it's how, a daily how, it's a daily discussion really how how does this person who wants to contribute contribute without getting in a lot of trouble yeah so one good thing is uh, is our uh, our audience imprint on the Arab Tarant manual currently the interesting thing is that if we if we look at our all time listens all time top cities if we look at our readership base 
we uh, find our that listeners. our listeners, we find that our top cities are Arab cities, even though we haven't even started speaking in Arabic. So this this is exciting for us. This is incredibly exciting because we're kind of blending these two audiences, highly respected academic uh, intellectuals and voices and a majority Arab audience, even before we get into Arabic. And neither of them are shouting at us, so we must be doing something, right? Yeah. It is important to notice how we got here and how we decided to move from the conception of Kawakibi Foundation as a think tank to a platform builder. Uh, so this is what we, where we want to be. We want to be one of the most important, if not the most important platform to discuss matters of Islam and liberty, Arab transitions, uh, and of course, Arab tyranny and the, the resistance to Arab tyranny. This is the part where I say the Arab Tyrant Manual is a project of Kawakibi Foundation, and that was the story of Kawakibi Foundation, and how the Arab Spring gave birth to this project. You can find a link to our Patreon below, and I can't emphasize enough how important your support is to us. We've decided to permanently connect our work to your support, and you will shape this project as we build it together. We consider ourselves to have completed our launch successfully once we've hit 1,000 supporters. Please click the link in the description. See you next time. يا مصطفى يا كتابا من كل قلب تألف ويا زمانا سيأتي يمحو الزمان المزيف يا مصطفى يا كتابا من كل قلب تألف ويا زمانا سيأتي يمحو الزمان المزيف Thank you.